Thanksgiving, you know, not, not the holiday, just giving thanks. When someone is grateful, it's usually because they've benefited in some way, right? You're thankful. I went to eat with uh, the Carlisle family, my best friend in school from the first grade through. We graduated together. We did everything together. We were shadows of each other. We even uh, thought each other's shoes were better than the ones we had, and we'd swap shoes while I was at school. It's just like, hey, I like your shoes. I like your shoes better, and we'd swap shoes. One time, we forgot to switch back before we got on buses, and I looked down, and I went, uh-oh, <laughs> Leonard Carlisle. But I went to eat with his family, and this is what they would do when they'd pass the food around. If they wanted something, they said, thank you for the biscuits. And then they'd pass the biscuits, and I says, but you hadn't got them yet, you know, it's like, have you ever seen anybody do that? You know, it was like, I thought, well, maybe that's faith. Maybe they were believing and confessing that somebody's going to give them some biscuits. But usually when we're grateful and we're thankful, it's because we've benefited. How does uh, giving thanks and worship, how do those two things differ? Good. I think they're a little bit related, but they're really very different, aren't they? Giving thanks is really motivated by something. Yeah, it's, it's responsive to something that you've benefited or somebody's done something. Yeah, even giving the Lord thanksgiving for your salvation, that's because we, we realize the benefit that we have of his grace. But worship really doesn't have to be motivated by anything external. And really and truly, I think worship is practically internal. Um, you know, the lifting of the hands of loving God, being demonstrative, not everybody does that. And I remember a guy in our church years ago in Florida, he didn't get out and jump in the aisle like some of them did. But he told me, he says, you know what, I, that's not me, but I'm jumping up and down inside. <laughs> and maybe that's the way he was wor worshiping and praising the Lord. Um, Worship has, to, worship has everything to do with the character and nature of God. It's generated by our awareness of something about him, not, not necessarily what he's done for us, but something about him that causes us to sing songs like, you know, all that I am I give you, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, every breath, every, everything about it is just like he deserves it. He, he is worthy of anything we express to him in his character and nature. Um, we don't do the doxology here, but when you think about it, at the end of the doxology, worship is rendered to, to the entire Trinity. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So all... All of the Trinity is involved in that praise and that worship. Doxology means the word of glory. It's giving God glory. Um, but we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit through the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. And it was the Father who surrendered Him to that. It was the Father that... And this was, this was decided before anything was created, before any matter was made, before there was a universe, before... Everything was, came into existence. It says that the decision ahead of time to remedy 
the humanity that God would create would be on the Son. That He was selected as the Lamb to sacrifice before anything. So you could say this was in God's mind before, before there was even time. I, I, think, I, I just find it odd how they, they gauge the age of our universe. Don't you? Because what is a year? It's one full orbit of this planet around the sun. Well, how did you gauge time before that happened? There was no time. And I guess, I don't know, it's just kind of like, I don't know how they come up with this billions of years or whatever. But God created us to worship him. This is the very essence of our being. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you can say, you can say, God bless you, God bless America, and most people will be receptive to that, right? But isn't it interesting what the name Jesus does to a conversation? It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes some people like, yeah, you know, that's my Savior. That's, I know him. But others, like, they get a little uncomfortable. They're okay with, you know, mentioning God as, you know, somewhere out there. But bringing a conversation back to where, you, where you're living and what's going on in your life. Um, I want to take you through some creeds tonight. I know you probably came so eager to jump in on creeds. Um, these were statements of faith, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into three different ones. And, and the reason I'm, I'm doing this is because I want to make a, a point about the centrality of Jesus in these creeds, and also He is our link to worship. He is our link to everything. Um, the Apostles' Creed is considered the oldest um, it's made reference to as far back as A.D. 140. And um, that first slide that you, you see up there, uh, it, it was the apostles did not write this, okay? This is accumulation of, of what they taught. So it's referred to the Apostles' Creed because they were the forerunner of creedal statements, and so they collected what they declared about the Trinity and about, uh, and, and they simplified it into this one statement. Now, what you're reading up there right now is the beginning part of the creed and the ending part of the creed. The beginning part is about the Father, right? I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. And at the end of it, you see there is, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. And, and you know, just pause there. Catholic actually is an adjective meaning universal. This is not a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It's like Brother Strader said, Roman Catholic is, a, is an oxymoron because it's Roman, a location, Catholic, universal. So it's really, those words don't really fit together. But there again, I'm just... But he talks about the Holy Church universally, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. We even have a song now called the, the Creedal Song that we sing. But I want you to see on the next slide how much is rendered in relation to Jesus, the Son. Actually, it's like double of both of the others. And why is that? 
But look at it real close. In Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. By the way, those, that little phrase was not in the early renderings of the Apostles' Creed. I think it was added because of, in Ephesians says, he that descended to lead captivity captive. Um, that's what it meant. When, while, you know, in that three-day period, while he was, his body was in the tomb, he was doing something during those three days in the spirit realm. Descended in hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This is the, one of the earliest creeds that the church had to say, this is our statement of faith. Now most churches have a lot more, right? We have a lot more theological statements where we have to take a stance on this and this and this and this. But this was the essence of what the church believed, and this was, um, was really agreed upon by Orthodox Christian congregations and, and gatherings. Um, I want to take you to slide three. This is the Chalcedonian Creed, and this came a little bit later. And all of these, uh, these things were revisited and restated. And why was that? Why was there a need? This is Chalcedon, uh, Turkey, that they had this gathering. This is like the fourth ecumenical council, you might say, the gathering of bishops. And they, had to, they came together and they had this uh, declaration. And, uh, and I think I've got this on two different slides. Is the first one up there. Is we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just think about what we read earlier in the Apostles' Creed and see how this is really different. It gets to a suggestion about Father and the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of like it just has a different tone to it. Our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, which is co-essential, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. And it continues on the next slide. To be acknowledged in two natures, and I don't know what in the world is confused sadly, inconfused sadly. You had to look that up. I don't think it's a word that is used anymore. But unchangeably, I guess it's really saying there's not really a doubt about all of this. Indivisibly, Inseparably, the distinct, distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. What do you think they're talking about there? Yeah, the, the, the manhood of, of Jesus and the, the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. How this, this is kind of like this is what it's all about. They really have these meetings about that. 
They mix in Father and Holy Spirit, but it's really come boiled down to they're really trying to address that. Um, I think I stopped away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning had declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. This was, again, part of them revisiting this whole thing about who Jesus, in essence, really was. Now, why do you think that was necessary? We'll, we'll, we'll address that question. Let me take you to the last creed, and then we'll jump in on some of these questions. This is the Athanasius, Athanasian creed, named after Athanasius, who was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, in the 4th century, 500, And um, the Catholic faith is this. I don't know if that, yes, that paragraph is up there. That we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And there is one person, the Father, another the Son, another the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And the next slide reads, I think, such as the Father is, such as the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. <clears throat> now, not on this slide, and I'm going to just, because this is, this is a long creed, uh, Athanasius put this together. Um, because they were battling, they were battling heresies in the church, and one of the heresies was stuff we still hear today, believe it or not. And I'll mention it here in just a moment. Let me read. This is not on the screen, and I'll get to another slide here in just a moment. As also, there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. Doesn't it sound a little redundant? I think they're trying to make a point, though. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. And that's exactly what, when you're trying to witness to a Muslim, they'd say we are. So you have three gods. You say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Says, no, it's, and it just kind of you know, gives them a brain cramp trying to hear your explanation. Um, so likewise, the Father's Lord, the Son, Lord, the Holy Spirit, Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For as we are compelled by the Christian verity, the truth, to acknowledge each person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we also are forbidden by the Catholic religion, against this, the universal statement for all Christianity, to say that there are three gods or three lords. That's not what we're saying. 
The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. And there's, if you want to hear somebody really address this, uh, C.S. Lewis touches on this. And, you know, I still try and understand what he said. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is of the Father, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. There is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And here's the, the last slide, slide seven. And in the Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But all three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity and Trinity and the Trinity and unity is to be what? Worship. Now, why do you think the early church was having to do this again and again and again? Yeah. And you mentioned the heresy. Yeah. You must have been teaching, and they felt like we, we were off course. We've got to reemphasize the bedrock things that we believe to get back on course. You know, before the last apostle died, there was already heresy. And when you read 1 John, John was dealing with a group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics really was saying knowledge is your salvation. And that all ma- is knowledge is this, not material things, because all the material world is evil. That's what Gnostics said. And therefore, Jesus could have not have come in one of these, because these are evil. So do you remember in John where he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is coming in the flesh is born of God, but whoever confesses that he's not come in the flesh is not of God, and that's Antichrist. Because the Gnostics were saying Jesus didn't really come in a real body, it was just like a phantom, because he couldn't have come in a real body. And, and when you do that, no matter which one you attack, you attack his humanity, you do not have him identifying with us. You do not have him facing life problems and situations and trials that we deal with. He's not the high priest that knows how we feel. If he didn't come in a real human body and was fully man, he really couldn't be there in our place. And then later on, around 200 years into Christianity, a guy named Arius came along, and Arius attacked the deity of Jesus that he was like a servant more than equal with the father and equal with the son. And this heresy really got a lot of traction. And this is one of the areas is one of the reasons why you had these things popping up occasionally, because even after he was defrocked and, uh, you know, and he had these disciples that just kept this teaching on. And I remember sitting right over here in this section, just me and a, and, and a man that, uh, you know, these people happen every now and then. <laughs> um, that you're not supposed to worship on Sunday, you're supposed to worship on Saturday, and you're not supposed to call God God, you're supposed to call him Yahweh or Jehovah, and and there's only one. Jesus is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've never heard that before, right? We call that what? Jesus only. United Pentecostal Church. 
And he was trying to tell me and explain to me why he felt like Jesus was all three. And it might not have been a good way for me to approach it because I really don't have patience with people like that anyway. And I says, so when, when, when did Jesus become divine? Was it in the womb? Yeah, I says, so there's nobody in heaven but angels? I mean, for nine months, angels are running the place. Because the Father and the Holy Spirit is all in there. And when he's like a baby, like they're still running the place. And then he gets to be an adult and he's, what, praying to himself? Who's he praying to? Why would he pray to himself? And, of course, he sat there and got more frustrated with me. As I, I, I'm sorry. I do tend to mock people, and I'm sorry. It's, it's a bad habit I have. Somebody irritates me. But the, there was real people that was trying to tell the church this, and this is why, what was at stake? What do you think was at stake? Our orthodoxy, our theology, what do you think was at stake? One word. One word's affected if any of this makes inroads. It's the last word that was on that slide. Worship. If he is anything but the incarnate Son of God, that shoots worship all to pieces. There's not a wonder. There's not a mystery. There's not anything holy. There's, it, it just reduces everything to this confused explanation of how we're saved. Either his blood is the atoning sacrifice for our sins or it isn't. Even today, I, I had uh, someone send me a, a text saying, you know, um, there's this friend of mine who has this guy that he's been talking to, witnessing to, that's a new ager, and he's asking um, anybody for help to uh, how to talk to him and and how to deal with him. And I thought, well, I'm not going to study new age to talk to someone. I said, just preach the gospel. <laughs> just like, you mean to tell me this isn't it? That Jesus wasn't crucified and was raised from the dead? Are you saying that didn't happen? Are you saying it could have happened? Or there's a good possibility it did happen. And that we put our trust and confidence in those two things, that he died on the cross, was raised from the dead. Is there any hope without that? Where do, you, where do, we, where do people put their hope? And, and these were people who were really trying their best to head off problems that would carry people into confusion, carry people into heresy, and they had, this, they had people who gathered around him. I'm, I'm telling you, if you don't think people can mislead people, just look at what Jim Jones did. And he was a charismatic personality. And cults happen all the time because people can convince someone that I've got the corner on truth. Everybody else is wrong. Nobody knows this truth but us. We are the secret people who have the the mystery in our hands, and, and this is how they approach people, and everybody like, 
Oh, we're going to follow them. How did this work? How did it work that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Because I just love the story that he's asleep on the boat and they're about to drown. That's, I, I think that's a great story. They were waking him up. Hey, we're going to drown here and you're sleeping. You're taking a nap. Get up. And does anybody find that kind of funny? I, I find that, I just like that. He's sleeping. He's worked miracles, but he's sleeping <laughs> while they're trying to bail water. I want to take you to probably one of the most important passages that I, I just believe should be a classic, you know, foundation for us. And it's in Philippians chapter 2, how this worked, how this really worked. And I'm going to start in verse 5, if you've got... You know, the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth changed everything. Changed everything. God in flesh, walking this earth, fully God, fully man. And this is how it worked. Fully God, fully man. Listen to this. Now, I'm reading this out of the NIV. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same approach as Jesus did. What was his approach? This gets really neat. Who being in the very nature God. And you think about this. Uh, Nathaniel, when he doubts anybody can come out of Nazareth, you know, of any stature. Can anybody come out of Nazareth that means anything? And then he shows up and Jesus said, here's a Israelite indeed. There's there's nothing guile in him whatsoever. Well, how did you know him? He said, oh, before you came here, I saw you under the tree. And he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, anybody other than the Christ, the son of the living God, would have rebuked him for saying that. He believed just because, you know, Jesus thought, wow, you believe what I just said because... Of that, well, you, there's going to be greater things. And he turned around one time and just told the guy, your sins are forgiven. And everybody gasped that was in the meeting. And what did they say under their breath? Only God can do that. Well, that's who was doing that. So he, he, people would fall down and worship him. Anybody else? You see angels in Revelation when John, you know, would be overcome by their presence and they'd fall down and they'd tell him, get up. Don't worship me. I'm a servant like you. I'm, I'm, I'm just here to serve. You're to worship God and, and only God. But Jesus had people bowing down, worship him. He never backed away from someone saying he's a son of God. He embraced that and, and he really really championed that in some settings. So here it is. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And boy, this is so differently translated in the King James, right? Thought equality with God was not, was not robbery to be equal with God. And robbery really means to grab hold of something. 
And even though Jesus was equal with the Father, he did not hold on to the full benefits of that. Maybe I should say it like that. He did not, he did not use omniscience. And he definitely didn't use omnipresence. Because <laughs> he was in one of these. And he couldn't be everywhere at the same time. Now, he could send a word to someone who was sick and they were healed, but he could only be in one place at one time while he was in this. And so he's in the very nature of God. And follow this. He didn't hold on that. Verse 7 is really the key. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself no reputation. Is that what the King James says there? He made of himself no reputation, even though he was in the very nature servant being made in human likeness. It's called, they call this the kenosis uh, teaching. Uh, when it says he made himself of no reputation, actually the word means to empty yourself, to let go. And what he, 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 was, he was God, perfect God, perfect man. But he did not use the attributes of God to his advantage. He did not use them. He laid them aside and trusted the Father to tell him what to do. That's why, you know, if he was omniscient, why did he go out and pray every morning? Because he was getting the communication for that day, he was listening to the Father. And there was times he probably like, we're just going to go and rest. We're going to go take a ride across the lake. We're going to go up into Lebanon and just take a vacation. And I, would, I, I believe I'm perfectly right on saying that because when he got up there, he wasn't going to do any ministry. And that's when the Phoenician woman, not an Israelite woman, not a Jewish woman, found out who was there and she barged into his vacation and said, my child is terribly demented. Please help her. And that's when he said, you know, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And boy, you read that, like, wow, that, that probably hurt most people's feelings. That would probably hurt my feelings, you know. But it, if it hurt her feelings, she didn't stop her. <laughs> we'll put it that way. And she said, well, at least we get to eat the crumbs. And he spoke healing. But it seemed like he was there and he wasn't going to do anything. He was just taking a break. The only time I've, I think he ever ventured outside, other than when he was a child and his parents took him to Egypt to protect him, it's the only time in the records of the gospel that he ever stepped out of Galilee and Judea proper. He went up into the Tyre and Sidon area, which is a, this is a pagan area. But it looks like he just went up there to get away from everything. I wouldn't blame him for that, would you? Verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He took this approach by becoming obedient to death. You don't think death was an ominous thing for him? He was human. And whatever the experience of death was, he did not have that. He did not have it in any regard to his 
pre-incarnate life. It was foreign to him. And that's why he's sweating. It's, it wasn't the pain. I think it was like, this is a door I really find troubling to walk through. He was straining in the garden of Gethsemane to where his sweat turns into block, drops of blood. And he is intense pressure. And it says, but he said, it, it said he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So th this was a plan. He knew it was a plan. He wasn't going to be stopped. He said, I have power laid my life down. No man has the power to take my life. I will voluntarily lay it down for the salvation of man. But it, it was a challenge to his personhood to do that. We see it. We see the agony. And it says, therefore, God, oh, this is, you know, I, I don't know if you journal every day or if you journal sometimes. But could you just do this as a project this week over the next seven days? Just jot down the times that you feel like you're just pulled into worship. It's early morning, throughout the day, um, in the evening, and just kind of track your worship habit for a few days. Because this right here, this right here is the foundation to give him everything. Just, just the song that we were singing. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my very soul. Soul to me is the mixture of your will and emotions. And, you know, it's, it's the essence of who we are. I think to me that our soul is the real us. This here is the house we live in. But what speaks through this house and what we experience inside of us is our soul. And we live, in a, we live in such a temporal world. We live in a physical world. There's all kinds of distractions all around us. And you know, probably one of the hardest times to worship the Lord is when you don't feel good. Or when you're tired or when you're irritated or something like that. And yet what we read here is, is a foundation to be in kind of continual worship. Whenever we can drift into that mode. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, and that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And boy, you can't, you can't go anywhere in Revelation and not see what the, the subject, the activity of heaven is going to be. And not really see, well, it's going to be one big old worship service. It's going to, it's going to rock heaven for us to really see. We, we have these kind of like romanticism about heaven. People are like, well, I wonder if there's a baseball field in heaven. Or a golf course, or there's got to be a racetrack for the Dale Earnhardts to be able to race their cars in heaven. And all of the things that we people think of, it's like, no, I, I think the throne room is going to be the epicenter of worship. And the essence of who he is, is already in us. He lives in us. He dwells in us. 
He's come to live and reside. You know, I think probably one of the most telling statements that Jesus said when he talked to his disciples is, you know, if you love me and you love the Father, I tell you what's going to happen. We're going to come to you and we're going to make our abode. We're going we're to make our home with you. We're going to come and live. You know that knock at the door in Revelation 3? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He said, if anybody will open the door. And, this, and he's really talking to a church about this. Not, I mean, we use that as a maybe in our witnessing, but he's actually talking to the church. He says, oh, you know what? I really would love to have fellowship with you, and I really would like to sit down and commune with you. I'm just over here knocking. I'm at the door. And, but if you hear me knocking, in other words, the Lord pulls us to worship. And, of course, I'm a mus- I love music. I, I've got a wide range of music that, that on my iTunes from Clint Brown to Keith Green to Gary S. Paxson, and most of you would not really enjoy Gary S. Paxson. It's a, he's a different bird altogether, but there's some of his stuff I like. But I think just us getting in a place to where, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to honor you. I want to honor you with my life. I, you're the reason I have any value. In life, you're the reason I have hope. No matter what happens, everything is anchored in you. And and I believe He's calling for His church to draw into Him. He's calling for us to draw close to Him, to find time to pull in and have communion with Him. So um, there's still there's still probably counterfeit stuff out there. You have to watch. You know, be careful who you, you know, become a celebrity in your, you know, books and stuff because there's only one one that is never going to be wrong, and it's this book. But you can pick people that really are on target, and you can trust what they're saying because primarily they live it. Well, stand with me, and I want us just to, have a moment of offering ourselves to the Lord.